Well, good morning. I tell you what, I'm thinking about what I want to be able to communicate this morning, and that songwriter of that song has done it all. Um, I love that song. That's an amazing song. Um, welcome. If you're a visitor here, um, we want to welcome you. If you're on live stream, I know we have some of our members of our body who still aren't able to fellowship with us, and um, um, we just want to say welcome to them as well. Um, what a privilege it is um, to be together. Um, for those of you who have been here, we're going through the book of Luke, so if you want to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 11. And for those of you who have listened to me um, before, you know, I like to see people turning in their Bibles. If you're on your phone, it's, I'm, I'm seeing every one of you, and it's confusing to me as I think you might be actually communicating with someone else or checking Facebook while um, we're here together. So it's an encouragement to me when you pick up one of these and open one of these up. So uh, Luke um, chapter 11. I want to say a special thank you to our preach team. Um, there's eight of us, and we, as we've been going through Luke, Luke, we paused, and so we've kind of assigned um, each of those eight guys a different portion of the Lord's Prayer here in uh, Luke 11. Now, some of us preach in greater proportion than others, and that, that's, <laughs> that's a good thing. Um, but what a great opportunity for you to hear the guys that come together um, on Saturday morning at 7 o'clock um, as we look at the messages that are coming um, to our body. Our purpose in our preaching is to magnify Christ and to edify the church. And so that is our goal each and every morning. We believe in the absolute authority of God's Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God, Paul says, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we're all students. Um, there's no one man that has complete and accurate interpretation of all of Scripture. If there was, we'd all go to that church, right? We'd be there. My kids always ask me, why is it? We, Hey, if it, God wants us to dig into his word. And so there is no one person that has that complete and accurate interpretation. We are all students. And those eight guys that come together and the eight guys that have been coming here are those students as well and students of God's um, word. Peter says this, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy is ever conducted by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God's word has the final word. And so we come to his word. So as we do that, I hope you're in Luke 11. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Pray for me. That would be a great encouragement um, to me. So let's go um, to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege we have of coming this morning and to gaze upon your revelation of yourself, and most perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we can do that. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds so that we might accurately interpret your word. There's only one correct interpretation, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us that interpretation. And then, 
that we might apply that in our lives today. So change us. Change me. Start with me. Start with the eight guys that come up here on Sunday mornings and preach. Start with us, Father, and then our families, and then our family of families, Community Bible Church. May we be changed by your word. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're taking notes, um, you're going to need like bullet points two, two, and five, okay? And so this is going to help you also kind of figure out, hey, how's Doug doing? Is he going to, you know, is he going to go over it? And, and um, Kim, Kim kind of helps me. She looks at me and kind of communicates, hey, land the plane, and little, little, little singles that will help me. But two, two, and five, um, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about two places we do not want to be when we're talking about sin. Two places we do not want to be. We're going to talk. I'm going to give you two definitions. Um, we're going to define sin. We're going to define forgiveness. And then I'm going to make five observations from our text as it relates to the Lord's Prayer. Okay. So Luke chapter 11 verses one through four. And you're most familiar with the Lord's Prayer in the context of Matthew six. But our study here is in Luke chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying. In a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John, that is John the Baptist, taught his disciples. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Our focus this morning is going to be on the first part of verse 4, and forgive us our sins. If, if the message has a title, it's simply that, forgive us our sins. Just a quick review. Tom Gregory opened us up in, in this study, and I'm going to give you kind of the main point as I had written them down in my notes um, from each of those messages. Uh, and Tom's point was this, prayer is a vital part of our relationship with God. The reasons to pray and the commands to pray are numerous. And Tom walked us through Luke, went through like 20 different ones. Christ modeled prayer in his life, and he instructed his disciples to pray. God is glorified when we pray. Brian Otten then brought us to verse 2. Father, hallowed be your name. Main point, the most foundational aspect of prayer is our understanding that we are approaching our holy, heavenly Father. As children of God, we have the privilege of approaching an otherwise unapproachable God. God is glorified in our prayer and adoration. Our, I'm sorry, our praise and adoration. In our prayer, in our praise and adoration. Your kingdom come. The rest of verse 2. Pat Peters um, spoke to us, and um, his main point was the meta narrative. From Genesis to Revelation, that's the big story. Meta-narrative, that's the big story. The big story of redemption. As God calls out a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be part of the kingdom that Jesus Christ is building, and one in which Christ rules and reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. 
we have the privilege of being a part of that kingdom work as we align our will with God's will. God is glorified as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, your kingdom come. And then last week, James Wolfe was here, going into verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. Main point, God is glorified. You see a pattern there? God is glorified in our daily dependence upon Him for our provisions. God is our provider. And when our heart is satisfied in Christ, we will be satisfied with His daily provisions. And forgive us our sins is our message for this morning. Main point, confession of sin is a daily product of a fellowship we have with our holy, heavenly Father. A confession that results in a joyful praise and adoration of the one who has made full provision for our sin. We are the children of a compassionate, merciful, and forgiving God. Sorry, I know that was long. It is on, I do have it on, I do have it in, um, on some um, note, notes on the back. But let me say that again. Confession of sin is a daily product. It's a daily outflow of a fellowship we have with a holy, with our holy heavenly Father. A confession that results in a joyful praise and adoration of the one who has made full provision of our sin. We are the children of a compassionate, merciful, and forgiving God. Amen? Let me say it a little bit differently. Just as God is glorified in the daily provisions of our physical needs, that is our daily bread, right? God is glorified in the forgiveness of sins that belongs to us because of who we are in Christ. He is, that is, Christ is the propitiation. He's the complete satisfaction of our sins. Now get this. Think about this. Every time we confess our sin, God is glorified. Do you ever think about that? Is it a, do you ever, I'm asking myself as I'm going through this, why is it we're so hesitant to ask God to forgive us of our sins and to ask each other when we sin against each other to forgive us of our sins as if that was something that demeans us? Well, it might, but it glorifies God, right? And the purpose isn't that we're glorifying ourselves, but that we're bringing glory to God. Every time we confess our sins, it glorifies God. To wonders here that I confess, the songwriter says, my worth and my unworthiness, but my value fixed. My ransom paid at the cross. And so the refrain goes, I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure. Wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. 
I love that song. <laughs> All right. I can get through this. Two things. Two places. Now, this there won't be any tears over. So, so we're going to take this a little seriously. Two places where we do not want to be when we think about sin in our lives. These are two places we don't want to be. These are two places where the enemy wants us. Okay? One is to take sin lightly. The other is to take God's forgiveness lightly. Are you hearing me on that? This is where the enemy wants to take you. Take sin lightly. He's good with that. Or take God's forgiveness lightly. Okay? To take sin lightly is, is it's, it's thinking or acting. And we don't say it, right? But we think it sometimes and we act like sin. There's no sin in our lives. John talks about that in 1 John 1. When we say we have no sin. Well, we may not verbalize it. But we try to act like it so many times. The enemy of our soul wants you to disregard the presence of sin in your life. That's his goal, to get you to disregard the presence of sin. The enemy of your soul also wants you to be comfortable with sin. One baby step at a time. Oh, you're uncomfortable with that? Oh, let's go back half a step. And one little step at a time, right? One little baby step at a time. Just get comfortable in your sin. I'm always reminded of my, one of my favorite sayings because I think about that. When you're taking those baby steps and you're comfortable in your sin or you're disregarding sin, is that sin will always take you further than you want to go, make you stay longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And don't we see this? You know? We see it. Suddenly, life blows up because of sin in our lives, and we're like, how did we get here? Do you think David woke up one morning, King David, and said, you know, I think I'll commit adultery and murder this year. I think that would be a good goal. No, no. It was one little step at a time. And we don't see all of that, but I assure you that's how he got there. If you think he was walking on his roof and seeing Bathsheba for the first time, that's not how it happened. It just is one step at a time. And either you're going to be doing war with sin, or sin's going to be doing war with you. You cannot take sin lightly. Here's a test, okay? So here's a test. Test I ask myself, okay? Fail this test a lot. So here's a test. How many times in the past 24 hours... Have you made an unconditional confession of sin? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. I get the impression that this is supposed to be a daily process of confession. How many times, don't have to raise your hands, don't, just how many times did you make an unconditional confession of sin? Now I'm going to tell a story about Kim and I. And this, this, I didn't ask her about this, but this is because I was in the wrong on this. So we're having this, I don't even remember what it was. Something, something was going on. We're having this battle, okay? And Kim, being the more mature one, finally says, stop. We stop. She says, you know, I just want to apologize. And I'm like, I, I, I forgive you, honey. I, I forgive you. And I paused. And she said, well... I said, I was just testing you, honey. I said, you were right to ask for, but you, you, suddenly that became a conditional confession, right? As soon as she said, well, 
it became a condition. When was the last time that you just said, I've sinned, period. I've sinned before God. And if it's someone that you've sinned towards, and I've sinned towards you, when was the last time you said that? When was the last time you have said that in the past week? That's test one. Test two. Who is it in your life? And let's not, I'm not going to include our spouse, okay? But who it is in your life that you have such a relationship with that they can point out sin in your life and you will not be offended? But you will be thankful, men, if a brother points that sin out in your life. Ladies, if another lady in love points that sin out in your life, who is it? Is that mine? Does that person come to your mind? Or are you struggling with that? Or is there, or you're like, yeah, I, I got that person, but it's kind of make-believe, you know? Oh, oh yeah, I, 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 I got people that could do that. Can you name that person? You're taking sin too lightly. The other place where the enemy wants you is he wants you to take forgiveness lightly. Thinking that God's forgiveness, and here, and it's, here it is, it's expressed in two ways. Thinking that God's forgiveness gives us a license to sin. Oh, I'm forgiven. Or not finding joy and satisfaction in the forgiveness that belongs to us because of who we are in Christ. Taking sin, taking forgiveness lightly. Thinking that somehow forgiveness is a license to sin. I have had somebody look me in the eye and say, yeah, I know that's sin, but God forgives me. Paul would say in Romans 6, in Romans 6, what? May it never be. Twice he says that in Romans 6. And I want to say, are you kidding me? Do we treat the blood of Christ, like it was purchased at the dollar store? Is that, is that how you're going to... Now, I want to give this person credit for being honest and just saying that out loud to me, but a lot of times, that's how we think. Oh, God will forgive me of this sin. It's okay. And when we do that, we treat the blood of Christ like it was something purchased at the dollar store at Dollar Tree. We cheapen it. That but we think there are no consequences to sin. You know, there are some people that think, oh, God forgives me, and that means there won't be any consequences. Oh, really? Did God forgive David of his sin? Yes. You guys, you can nod your head. Yeah, yeah, he did. Were there consequences of his sin? Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and listen to what Nathan told him. He was forgiven. David was forgiven, and his heart, and we'll read Psalm 51, you see the heart of David in magnifying in God's forgiveness, but there were consequences. So and the enemy wants you in two places, either take sin lightly or take forgiveness lightly. Both of those come from thinking too much of ourselves and thinking too little of God. Here's the place we want to be. As we walk in fellowship with a holy God, we, one, we acknowledge the magnitude of our sin. And two, we find joy and praise in the magnificence of God's forgiveness because of who we are.
in Christ. Let me say that again, because this is where we want to be. As we walk in fellowship with the Holy God, we want to acknowledge the magnitude of our sin, while at the same time we find joy and praise in our hearts because of the magnificence of the forgiveness that we have. That's the heart of true confession. And that brings glory to God. That's how I can say that confession brings glory to God. That's the heart of David in his confession in Psalm 51. Two definitions, all right? Two places we don't want to be. Two definitions. First, we need to define sin. A proper understanding of sin leads us to a proper confession of sin, right? If you don't understand what sin is, your confession is going to be confused. Now, I'm going to start out with a secular definition of sin. This is a man. I'm just going to tell you out front. This is not. This is not a trick question here. I mean, this is the man-centered definition of sin. But listen to how good it sounds and how it's creeped into the church. A word or action that brings harm, physical or emotional harm, intentional or unintentional, to another person. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? If I define sin as a word or action that brings harm, physical or emotional, intentional or unintentional, to another person, that's sin. What's it missing? It's missing. It's missing our relationship with God. It's only at a horizontal relationship. To be sure, we are relational beings. When we sin, we sin against each other. That, that, that always takes place. But in this secular definition of sin, or this morality, this secular morality, a couple of things take place. We rationalize sin. This, this definition causes us to rationalize sin. And here's a couple of points about that. We define sin by its outcomes. It's, you know, a, a little lie, a white lie. That's okay if the ultimate outcome is achieved. The church does. I mean, the church, I mean, we do this in our lives in, in, in all the things that we do. And um, one, thing, one thing I think about so often is that we, 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 rash, we demean marriage because of this definition of sin and our rationalization in getting there. We're okay with divorce and remarriage if the outcome, in the end, everybody's better off than they would have been without it. It's just at this level. All that is is a secular definition of sin. Man becomes the ultimate arbitrator. Sin is relative, right? It's defined by our ever-changing circumstances and not by the unchanging character of God. We weigh sin by the severity of its consequences. And here's what we do. We live a life, our morality is based on managing consequences. That's what this does. If this, if this is your definition of sin, your life is spent managing consequences of sin. That's what you do. Is this, you know, uh, it's not right, but I, I think I understand the consequences and what's going to happen. I, I can manage through that. If you do this, it turns into a tangled web. It never works out like you think because the enemy always lies. And the enemy always, sin always promises something it can't deliver. Then when it doesn't deliver, it says, oh, wait, 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 well, it makes another promise. And then 
We're like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And we believe, what is it about us that we believe the next promise when the enemy has never delivered on a promise and God always delivers on his promise? We look to minimize collateral damage. We just try to manage consequences. And then we think somehow we can address it through behavioral modification. That's where this leads. This, this is where this leads. Then we think, well, we just modify our behavior. We try to take care of the outward behavior instead of dealing with the issues of the heart. And that just leads to frustration. It really does. But here's the worst part of that secular morality. It's a morality that has no need for the cross of Jesus Christ. If you don't view your sin as high treason against a just and holy God, then you have no need for the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not necessary. Well, how about a God-centered definition of sin? How about that? Anything, thought, action, or intention of the heart, anything that violates the nature, the character, and the being of God, as expressed and revealed in His Word. Anything, thought, action, or intentional heart that violates the nature, the character, and the being of God. It, whatever it is, any this anything does not bring glory to God, and it does not reflect His character. In fact, it violates His character. All right, if you're in... Our, if, if you're in our uh, Wednesday class, um, adults, you can tune me out right here, okay? It's because we don't teach an adult class. If you're in Kim and I's class, first, second, third, fourth grade, or if you're even younger and, you have, and you've been through this book or you're familiar with this, stand up. Stand up, guys, gals, stand up. Right, come on, stand up. Hey, Peyton there, yeah, Baptist. I, stand up, there you go. Stand up, okay. Where's Luke? Okay, all right. All right, now guys, you can answer these questions, okay? I'm going to ask you some questions. <clears throat> say them, not like you're nervous and you're in church, but say them like you're in class, okay? Who made me? What else did God make? Why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Okay. One last question, and this question is on topic. What is sin? Thank you. You may be seated. Sin is any transgression of the law of God. John says this in 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. That's what transgression is, lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. There it is defined for you. So what's the connection with me saying sin is any, anything, thought, action, or intention of the heart that violates the nature, character, and being of God? Well, because the law, the commands of God, reveal the character of God. The law is, a, is, is an expression of who God is. Paul says in Romans seven twelve, the law is holy, as God is holy. And the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. That's who God is. And so the law is that because it's an expression of who He is. Whether it's an Old Testament law or whether it's out of New, everything, all of God's commands are holy 
Because God is holy. Now, for the unbeliever, for those who do not know Jesus Christ, the law condemns. It condemns because by nature, apart from God, we are God-haters and self-lovers. And so the last thing we want to do is something that reflects the glory of God. In fact, the law of God only represents restrictions upon us. That's how the, that's how the world sees the commands of God. Oh, they're restricting. Restricting from what? Restricting me from being the God-hater and the self-lover that I am. But for the believer, for the child of God, the commands of God give expression of God's character. Living in obedience should be a joy for us as children of God. Why? Because it glorifies God. That's why we're liberated in Christ. Because now the law no longer condemns us, but now it, it, it finds expression in, in our obedience to the law. God has made us in our image. We live in according to the commandments of God, and we, ref, and we are to reflect His image. Those who live in obedience to God's commands give a glimpse of who God is to the world around them, to your neighbors and to your friends. 1 Peter 2, Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, did I get my, am I making my point? The commands of God give expression to his character. Now, I got a homework assignment for you, and it's not like sometime during this week, this is why you're driving home where you forget about it. Take the Ten Commandments. With your, if you have children, take the Ten Commandments with your children and ask yourself if, the command, if, if, if what I'm saying is correct, if the commandments are an expression of, the, of who God is, take, take, that, take any one of those commandments and say, well, how is that an expression of the nature, the character, and the being of God? Okay, can you do that? Just, just today, do that. Okay, here's an example. This is like when you take a test, right? And they, the teacher always gives the easy one, and then you have to work with the hard one, right? Here's the easy one. You shall not bear false witness. Well, that flo- because God is truth, Right? Okay, that's an easy one. Now the teach team, when I was presenting this material to the teach team, they got all distracted because they're like, oh, let's see. We, you can't really break God's character down into multiple places and just match it to each command. Yeah, you miss the point if you're doing that, okay? One of the guys said, hey, I'm going with the holiness of God and I'm just going to stick that all the way through. On you, Yeah, you can do that. You can do that, but you, you miss the, you're missing the point of the exercise. The, the, the point of the exercise is to recognize that God's, that God's commands and laws are an expression of his character and who he is. Here's a hard one. Here's a hard, I'll, so I can't, I'll give you these one. Here's a hard one. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Whew, that's a hard one. I mean, we're no longer under the law, right? The Mosaic law. 
But that doesn't mean that this law didn't flow out of the very nature, character, and being of God. So what is it about God that he would say, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? Well, I'm not going to answer that for you. I will say this. Jesus, did, Jesus said this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Hebrews, so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Is there something about the person of God and his character where rest is meaningful to us? And when we do that, we are reflecting his character. Get the point? You got it? You got it? We got it? Okay, you have the assignment. Ten commandments, you can do that, all right? Sin or transgression or lawlessness is anything, thought, action, or intention of the heart that violates the nature, character, and being of God. It's a failure to reflect the image of God. That's why he made us, and it's a failure to glorify God. Sin, and I've already said this, but I've got to say it again. Sin, because we, we got to think like this, sin is cosmic treason against the sovereign ruler of all creation. It's treason. I don't care what it is. When you sin, whether you think it's a little sin or whether you think it's a big sin, is treason against the God of this universe. And parents, let me say this. Listen to me, dads and moms. When you train your children, when we're training our children, we must connect the commands that we give them with the character of God. If you don't do that, you're going to end up with children that think of sin like I described it at first. It will be a secular morality. You have to connect the commands that you give them with the character of God. Our children should see our own confession, parents. As we confess our sins, they should see our confession as something that's necessary and routine. Hey, for you kids in here, Bap, when it's time to eat and you come running in from outside the house, what's the first thing mom says? Go, thank you, who said that? Go wash your hands. That's right. Here's your assignment, church body. Every time you go and wash your hands, I want you to think about confessing sin. In your, I mean, Jesus said that this should be each day. This is part of confession. But when we wash our hands, it ought to be a reminder to us, you know what? You need to be confessing some sin. Forgiveness. That was the definition of forgiveness. Where am I? That, sorry. We're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to define forgiveness really quickly, okay, to stay, to stay in our time frame. Here's the definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a transaction between an offended party and an offending party in which the offended party agrees to pay the full price associated with the offense, okay? That's what forgiveness is. It's a trans, it is a transaction, I assure you of that. It's a, trans, a transaction between an offending party and an offended party in which the offended party agrees to pay the full price associated with the offense. And a lot of the translations that you might be familiar with are forgive us our debts, right? 
instead of, instead of forgive us our sins. But forgive us our debts is a great way to help us understand exactly what's being communicated here. I mean, the, in, in the Greek, I understand the Greek word is designed to, to, to communicate an insurmountable debt, one you could never possibly pay. And because God is just, sin always comes at a cost. Or, I'm sorry, forgiveness. Well, sin does come at a cost. Forgiveness always comes at a cost. Always. Always. God's justice demands that a price must be paid, a full price must be paid for sin. And either we and either we're gonna either either we're gonna either the offended party will pay that price, or the offending party can pay that price. But the price has to be paid. In forgiveness, the offended party willingly, let me just say this again, willingly pays the price. Motivated by compassion, grace, and mercy. And those are all characteristics of, of God. Jesus illustrated this in Matthew 18. You're familiar with the passage. Uh, Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to, up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times. 70 times seven. For this reason, Jesus goes on to say, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children all, and, and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, that is the master, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, and released him, and forgave him the debt. Now Matt will probably bring you the rest of that story next week, as we talk about forgiving one another. But know this, Forgiveness always comes at a cost. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. When we were dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he that is God made you alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. And so, in our daily walk, in our sanctification, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, forgive us our sins. Confession of sin is an important element in the model of prayer that Christ has given us as his disciples. So let me make five observations. I make five observations on how can and, and in this case and how confession fits within the context of this prayer. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. Point number one: confession of sin is directed towards God the Father. 
Prayer starts out, Father. All sin, hear me on this, is first and foremost a sin against God. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is anything that falls short of the nature, the character, and the being of God. It doesn't reflect who He is. It doesn't glorify Him. And David said in Psalm 51, Against you and you only have I sinned. It's directed towards God, our Father, first and foremost. The genuine confession of sin is only possible, only possible for one who is a child of God. Genuine confession is evidence of one who is a child of God. That ought to be part of your life. If you're not confessing sin, you might want to think about that. We have been adopted into the family of God at the highest imaginable price, the blood of Jesus Christ. Or do you not know, Paul says, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Our confession of sin is the fruit of, Hear me on this, is the fruit of one who is walking in the light of God's truth. First John 1, this is what God's children do. It's what we do. It should be characteristic of us. Confession of sin is indicative of one who walks in the light of God's word. Why? Because light exposes sin. First John chapter 1, we've heard this before. This is a passage that's familiar to you, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, that is with God. We have fellowship with God. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us, it's a continuous cleansing, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, or if we act like we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have no sin or act like we have no sin, we make God a liar, we make Him a liar. And his word is not in us. Show me a disciple, a follower of Christ, who makes confession of sin a regular part of his or her life. And that's the same person I'll show you that is walking in the light of God's word. You simply cannot walk in the light of God's word and not be exposed to sin in your life. Father, forgive us our sins. Number two, confession of sin is motivated by and results from a true encounter with the holiness of God. Hallowed be thy name. Confession of sin is motivated by and results from a true encounter with the holiness of God. Hallowed be thy name. The greater our awareness of the holiness of God, the greater our awareness of our sin. 
When you think little of your sin, it's because you think little of God. Are you hearing me on this? Big God, big sin, little God, little sin. That's just a direct correlation. That's how it works. Remember the passage in Isaiah? Isaiah comes before the very throne room of God. Seraphim, they stood above him. This is, and each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two, these are the angels, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And they called out from one to another, said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Big God, big God. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I, this is Isaiah, said, here's confession, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King of kings and the Lord of hosts. Big God, big confession. Then God's provision. Then one of the seraphims flew at me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. You see it? Big God, big sin. Confession of sin, God's provision for that sin. That one you're familiar with. Here's one from Job chapter 42. If you're familiar with Job and his life, listen to this in Job. Now listen to this and listen for the big God and the confession of sin. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Big God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I do not understand. He belittles himself. He's starting. He sees that picture. Things too wonderful me for me, which I do not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract. And I repent in dust and ashes. Thank God. Big sin. Big sin, confession, God provides. The more clearly we see the holiness of God, the more evident our sin is. Third observation from this text. Confession of sin works to entangle us from the sins that hinder our proclamation of the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come, Jesus taught his disciples. When our will is aligned with God's will, we are not comfortable with sin. Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. When our will is aligned with God's will, we're not only uncomfortable with sin, we make war on sin. Galatians 5, 
15 through six, uh, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. You cannot fight an enemy. Listen to me. You cannot find a, fight an enemy you're not aware of or you won't acknowledge. Anybody in war will tell you that. In fact, the whole idea is to get you to think there is no enemy. You can't fight him. We first must acknowledge the presence of sin in our life before we can fight it. A confession of sin disentangles us from the sin that hinders us from the proclamation of the gospel. As we live a life loving the things that God loves and hating the things that God hates. Number four, we're getting there. We're almost there. One, two, three, four. Confession of sin is both necessary and frequent in the life of God's children. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. It's daily. We're both physical and spiritual beings. God provides for us, for our, both our physical needs, and He has provided for our spiritual needs. He has provided for our sin. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, John says, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. That's an ongoing, ongoing, Ongoing routine part of our life as children of God. I, I reminded you before of the story of Peter on the night when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, and, and Christ humbles himself and he goes and he goes to wash the feet of his disciples. And Peter says, Oh, not me, Lord. You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, Well, then I'm not going to have anything to do with you. And Peter says, Well, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I, uh, my head, all, my, all of me washed. And Jesus is like, you've been bathed. You just need to have your feet cleaned, right? That's what we need on a daily basis. Now, we don't think, we don't think our feet don't get as dirty as our hands do. But let me remind you, every time you go to wash your hands, think about that need. Confession of sin is necessary and frequent in the life of God's children. Number five, and I'll close with this. We confess our sins to a compassionate, merciful, and forgiving God. Amen? Amen. Right? Um, turn, to, turn to Psalm 51. Here's what I want. Here's what, and and as, as I'm reading this, what I want you to see is big God, big sin, and that confession of that sin, all right? Hear the heart of David. David got it. He got it. Psalm 51. Are you turning there? I see some pages flipping. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, may God blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions 
and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Amen? Big God, big sin. Magnificent provision that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, What a privilege it is to be called your children. To be children of the Most High God, the creator of this universe. And that while we were yet sinners, while we were still in our sin, hating you and loving ourselves, you sent Christ to die for our sins. You have redeemed us against our will. And you have made us children of the living King. Thank you that that provision for our sin has been made, and may we not be embarrassed to say, I have sinned. Thank you, because in saying that, we bring you glory because you have made that provision for our sin. And it is because of Jesus Christ and him alone that we can worship you and praise you, and we thank you in his name. Amen.